Welcome to a special episode of MLS Gone Wild, where we have the one and only Alexei Lawless joining us today. Glenn, take it away. Yeah, what's up, guys? Welcome to MLS Gone Wild Week 13. Uh, this week we have uh, a special guest on our show, like Pupis has said. He's a National Soccer Hall of Fame player, U.S. Men's National Team legend, MLS pioneer, host of the State of the Union podcast. So if you don't currently listen or subscribe, go ahead and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Uh, and a member of the Fox Soccer Crew. Our, we, our guest this week, Alexi Lawless, everyone. Welcome, Alexi. Oh, thank you. That's a wonderful introduction. Thank you for having me, Dak, Blem, and Poopus. If I, I hope I got those nicknames right. Uh, it's a pleasure to hang out with you guys and uh, talk about the beautiful game. I hope you and all of yours are uh, safe and obviously sane in these interesting times that we are living through. And, uh, you know, as a, I'm about to turn 50 years old and uh, I have the the beard to prove it. So I'm on lockdown here in Los Angeles, uh, like everybody else, although it's starting to open up a little bit. So hopefully we're heading in a good direction and you know, whatever that new normal is, uh, hopefully it has the game that we all know and love in, uh, in some form or another. So we're seeing some Bundesliga action and maybe some other leagues coming back online. So good, good signs, but we're still not out of the woods yet. Yeah, absolutely. When's your birthday? Let's see. I am a Gemini June 1st. The 1st of June, I will turn 50 years old. I will have spent 50 years on this plant, planet. I do not feel uh, 50 years old. Uh, you, you know, mentioned some of the things that, that I've done way back before you guys were probably around back in the 1900s, back before many of you were born, running around on the soccer field. And now I still make my living, like you said, working for Fox and uh, and talking about soccer and screaming and yelling. And I'm, I'm very fortunate and privileged. And uh, I remind myself each and every day about how lucky I am, uh, not just from a, a job perspective, but a life perspective, because there's a lot of other people out there that would love to have my job and they can maybe pry it from my cold dead hands, but also a lot of other people out there, that especially in this time, uh, are a lot worse off. And so um, things could be a whole lot worse. And so maybe some perspective is in order. And I try to remind myself each and every day. Yeah. So. That's really good insight. Yeah, we, we were alive in the 1900s. I was born in 1993. Uh, okay. Poops is, is a little bit older than us. Dax around right. the same age. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you're definitely blessed to be in the position that you're in to work in the game of soccer. The game that you play and the game that you love is uh, is definitely awesome. And you know, thank you for being on the podcast and you know letting these newcomers you know bring you on for an interview and get to chat with you and see some of your perspectives on the game. No, I love it. Even in in normal times, you know, I do as many as I possibly can. And you know, the whole podcast uh, industry has exploded. But as it relates to soccer, it's always been a really, really important type of um, way for us to get the message out, way for us to talk and debate, which is not, a, we don't have enough of that in our sport because in a lot of the mainstream platforms out there, they're, they're mostly dedicated to the other sports. And so you know, the podcasting, whether it's just the audio or whether it's the audio and, and visual now uh, component, there's platforms out there. And for a number number of years it's been the way to get that information out and to talk and so you guys are doing uh important stuff whether you realize it or not and it's a it's a pleasure to come on and talk about things we don't have to agree all the time but uh, we can do it in a respectful way and we can talk about the things that we love both on and off the field because that's that's what i love to do and I'll, I'll do it with anybody out there yeah so you basically just answered my question uh i was going to ask why did you agree to this interview you know i know i've constantly been bugging you and in your dms and sending you every episode no um, i mean well first off uh you're you're doing something new and you're doing something creative that involves soccer obviously so it's near and dear to my heart um and i want to encourage uh i want to you know help uh, in any way any possible way that i can uh there are you know, there's, there's all different types of podcasts and there's all different types of platforms out there when it comes to the sport. And there's, 
none are too big or too small or too different. And I, I get something out of each and every one that I, uh, that I go on. And, you know, I enjoy doing it and I enjoy talking about it. You know, you can only get so much through social media or, or Twitter or Instagram or any of the other ones out there. And so when you can actually get a chance to talk to people, obviously in an ideal situation where we're talking as humans face to face, but that you know, just even in normal times, that isn't always uh, able to be accomplished. So uh, as we've ramped up in this lockdown, it's been great to get face to face. I've done so, I don't know about you guys, but I've been on Zoom calls for, for many, many weeks now, many, many months now. And it's actually introduced me to a lot of people. I've, you know, I've talked to all sorts of teams and coaches and leaders and media folks out there that maybe in normal times, I wouldn't necessarily have gotten the chance to, uh, to talk to. And I've learned a whole lot about the, the community that I love, which is the soccer community. And you guys are part of that. Well, thank you for welcoming us, welcoming us with open arms. We appreciate it. Well, what do we do now? Is that it? I'm done. Thanks, guys. Yeah. See you. All right. <laughs> so we're going to bring you questions now. That's what we're going to okay. do. Okay. All right. Yeah, okay. we, so we like, got to keep these guys on track, Alexi. <laughs> yeah. So, like, I've been watching the Bundesliga, like, recently and stuff like that and how they brought in, like, the, the fans, like, over the, like, speaker system and stuff like that and, on, like, over Fox. Yep. And especially today when Weston McKinney scored his goal, I was watching that. So what what kind of what kind of things can the MLS take away from the Bundesliga to actually resume their season? Well, it's 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 interesting. It's a great it's a great question because you know right now, Boopus, everybody is watching the Bundesliga. And by the way, not just other uh, soccer leagues, but also other sports um, and other and and leagues. You know, basketball because they're, they're all coming online. And right now, I, I have to say, if I had to give the Bundesliga a grade, it's an A. And yes, they're a little different and they were able to be the first back, but they have now set the standard and everybody has to live up to that standard now or surpass it and evolve from what, ha what they've already done. You know, you mentioned the, uh, the enhanced audio. So when, the, when it started out uh, uh, last week uh, and we were showing on Fox, we were showing the games uh, raw in that there was no enhanced video. And I don't know about you, but uh, it, was, it was obviously very, very stark uh, and yeah. eerie. Uh, and jarring to the senses to not have it. And I'll let you in on a little secret. While, while for a little bit it's interesting to hear what the players and the coaches and the referees are saying, it gets old really, really quick. And, I, and then this weekend we saw the advent uh, in Fox over here because other countries have been doing it where we, we use the enhanced audio. And what uh, your, your listeners and your viewers should know is that Bundesliga does this and you get to opt in or out regardless when it comes to the games. And so we've seen it with it and we've seen it without it. And I was always a proponent that this was going to be something that was going to be done. And if done correctly and creatively could actually enhance the viewing experience because sports are comfort food. And I think what we've seen is even people that are adamantly against it for whatever reason, there's some legitimate reasons out there. I think they've come around to say, look, the ear wants what the ear wants. And this is giving us a, um, it's, not, it's not ideal and it's not soccer as we know it completely, but it's approximating, especially the sounds. And there's something soothing and comforting to having that in the background. And there's an artistry now in the men and women that are in charge of riding that fader when it comes to the audio, because you got to know the ups and the downs. And now we're even seeing some whistles. We're seeing some chants and some singing uh, relative to the actual teams that are playing. So already it's ramping up. And that's what we're going to see is the Bundesliga is going to change as it goes along and tweak some things going along 
And then the other leagues have to come in and we'll see where they come in, whether it's MLS or the NFL for that matter. They're going to come in and we're going to see probably a bunch of different levels, but that compare and contrast is going to happen with the Bundesliga. I don't think we ever really have, I don't think we ever really appreciated the sound in a soccer game when you're watching it from, you know, when it's being televised, you know, you're, you don't realize what you have until it's gone. And right now they're doing a good job of improvising and bringing in that sound. And today watching, I forget which game it was, but it made it feel more real. You know, it, it made the viewer really engage a little bit more. I heard them playing the chance. I didn't hear the whistles, but. It's not going to you know, stop either. Cause, cause you know, look, now this is, we're talking about audio. But now the optics and the, and the visual part of it's also going to be enhanced at some point. We saw the tarping of some, field, or, uh, some stadiums to cover up yep. some of the uh, things and with the pictures of the fans. And mm-hmm. that's obviously a two-dimensional type of thing. But we, you know, we could see virtual reality type of stuff. We could see LED boards with fans. We could see interaction from home, even with the latency and the, and the problems there. People are going to work this out. And it's almost as if we're getting forced to be creative and to think outside the box. And sometimes innovative type of things come from challenging situations. Yeah, this creates an opportunity for all of these leagues across the world to be creative on how they um, provide content to their to their viewers and to their customers. Yeah, and uh, like you said, enhancing the viewer and try, like kind of getting the viewer to buy into it. And that's kind of what we talked about on a previous episode when the first MLS thing got uh, – announced or leaked whatever whichever way you want to put it and we talked about if they're playing in disney how do they catch a normal like viewer's eye instead of like diehards are going to watch it but how do they promote it more to the typical person who normally doesn't watch soccer but since it's the only thing on tv they might sit back and watch it and playing on at disney fields it's not the best environment there's no stadium it's just empty fields and we were trying to discuss ways how they can enhance and kind of catch the normal viewer's eye you you, you hit up you hit upon a really really important topic now because mls uh is is going to come back in this form and it's going to be a standalone type of tournament type of thing if rumors are to be believed but let's be honest it's gonna it's gonna happen the problem that MLS is going to face is they are going to be compared with the Bundesliga. And like you said, in the, in the Disney environment down there, we've all played in them. It's, it's some beautiful fields, but it's this mass expanse of a lot of fields. It's not the stadium types of situations. And so what I fear is that it's going to look, and this is something that MLS can't afford, it's going to look second rate. It's going to look minor league. It's going to mm-hmm. look high school. It's going to look pre mm-hmm. And that's not a good look for... MLS. NBA can probably get away with it because they're the NBA, but Mm -hmm. MLS is comparing themselves to the rest of the world because that's the sport that we play. And MLS is very, very concerned about not appearing minor league. And so I, I, if I was the men and women right now in MLS, I would be thinking long and hard of that production part of it and how they put it up. Because if it pales in comparison and dramatically pales in comparison to what uh, the Bundesliga is doing, that's not going to be that's not going to be good because you know MLS still is striving for relevancy and if people see this production and it, as I said it looks minor league then that is going to hurt their credibility and it's going to hurt their relevancy and that's not something that MLS can afford so it's going to cost money and I hope they you know I hope they do find ways to make it different it doesn't have to be exactly like the Bundesliga but you have to give people something because listen, guys, we know that the NFL is going to come back and you know that the NFL is 
plotting right now that when they come back to give the viewers something the likes of which they've never seen. They got the money and they obviously have the, the desire and the need to do something like that. So, uh, you know, it's, it's just ramping up. It is a competition any way you slice it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and speaking from a competition standpoint, the NWSL, um, they just, you know, released their statement today saying that they're going to start playing Utah. There's going to be no player cuts or anything like that. Um, whereas the MLSPA has just sent a counteroffer. The MLS has sent a counteroffer for a 10% pay cut. What do you make of the pay cuts and the NWSL coming back first? Well, the leagues need the players and the players need the leagues, but there is leverage. And so that any player group uh, leverages this, this decision and this agreement to do something like this that is different, that is unique. Um, it should be surprised to no one. And they're going to get, you know, extra, extra years on a CBA or in the NWSL's case, you know, guaranteed contracts, these types of things. And that's, that's just business and that's, uh, that's normal. With the NWSL, I think that they actually saw an opportunity to be the first. And so when they're the first, and they're, they're a lot more nimble and they can kind of do these things, but when they're the first, what happens? Well, they also are very smart because they know that every article that is written, and even if you look at the last 24 hours, the articles that have been written, those articles are going to be associated and wrapped with the U.S. women's national team and you know, the, the overall fight. And we all know that in the court of public opinion, the women are killing it. They're incredible in terms of the support that they have. And so associating and, and almost marrying themselves to that with this announcement of being the first kind of once again puts everybody on a pedestal, not just the women's national team, but now they use that, that leverage that they have, that they've acquired. Over, I'm talking about the women's team. Now, NWSL uses that with this announcement. So I think it, it was strategic. I think it was really smart. Uh, and I'll be really interested to see how it is covered and then ultimately what they look like also on the field because they, they do have uh, – it's not a responsibility, but they, there, is a, there is a need and, a, re, uh, and you know, a, a practical reality that when they step on the field, if it just looks like preseason games, then that's prob- problematic for them uh, just like it would be in it for anybody else. Unfortunately for the NWSL, you know, they're always kind of second fiddle to the MLS. Um, so this, you know, like you said, they came back first. So this is definitely an opportunity for them to grow their fan base and expand on um, their viewers. So, like I said, it's definitely an opportunity. So hopefully the game does grow. I think they're going to be televising on CBS All Access or something like that. Dakota, is that correct? Yeah, they're going to do all the games on CBS Access. And then they're going to do the semifinals and the finals on CBS they also used it as an opportunity to announce their, you know, new sponsorships and the marketing part of it, which is, which is huge in any league, but this was a nice little platform them to have, a, you know, kind of a, a moment alone to announce that. And that's, that's a feather in their cap and that's a really good look for the league going forward. Right. Now, do you, do you think Don Garber's focusing more on this linked information more than just, you know, playing out this whole MLS tournament? Yeah. I mean, look, the, the league situation, if I'm in his spot, um, you know, I'm concerned, uh, even though it was kind of benign, it really doesn't. Yeah. And, and, and keep in mind, guys, as you know, trial balloons in terms of leaks are floated out there all the time. So leaks mm-hmm. that you want to get out, get out. Leaks that you don't want to get out, do get out. And those are the ones that you have to be concerned about. Um, I, I don't think that he is as up in arms as, uh, as we may think or as the, uh, the, the once again, the leaked, the leaked met letter or memo would make it would make it seem but that's that's not a good look because if it's a trial balloon to see that reaction 
um, then it's strategic. And, and let's be honest, I think the, the general reaction to the Orlando plan has been pretty positive. Uh, and so if that was a trial balloon, it served its purpose. And now I think they can go on as opposed to if they put it out there and all hell broke loose and people saying there's no chance this could ever happen. Why are we doing this? Which, is, which, which, which isn't the case. But there's a bigger question of you got to be able to keep things internal and you have to be able to discuss things and make sure that there is a level of privacy uh, in order to actually do your business. So that he is miffed and that he wants to get to the bottom of this, that's part of his job. And I understand that. I don't think he's focusing every single day on that. But, you know, if and when this becomes problem, problematic and something leaks out that is crucial and is ultimately detrimental to what they're doing, and not just the fact that it's leaking, but actually hurts something that is in place or blows something up that, that, yeah. uh, that didn't need to get blown up, that's when there's an even bigger problem. So I think he's just trying to nip it in the bud uh, as, as much as he possibly can. But you know as well as I do, it's, it's, it's a whole lot easier to say it than actually find it and do it. <laughs> yeah, he has the responsibility to control the exposure of the information that you know, they're d- divulging to the public. But it definitely is entertaining to see some of these leaks and get some of this information early and provide us with some insight on the thoughts of the MLS. Hey, and it's, and the- it's, it's good journalism and it's, it's people doing work and having contacts and, you know, mining and, and making sure that they get it. And so, you know, whether it's Sam Stagecool or Paul Tenorio or anybody, you know, Jeff Carlisle's of the world or Grant Walls or, or Stephen Goss, all of these people that have been around. Um, and even, you know, play, people that haven't been around a long time, finding ways to get those, you know, get that source and then get that information. I mean, it's no different than any other sport. And if you want to be relevant, you have to behave and you have to be treated and you have to act like the other sports out there. And this happens all the time in every other sport and a much greater level, by the way. Yeah, the athletic is doing a hell of a job at getting this information out there to us. Yep. I, l- yep. I love it. Uh, so we're going to switch gears a little bit here, Alexi. So Poop has kind of touched on it earlier about the, the Bundesliga coming back. Weston McKinney scoring a goal. We saw Alfonso Davies play yesterday. You've regarded him as one of the best players in the CONCACAF or the best player in CONCACAF. So the question being here, why do we see more American and former MLS players have more success in the Bundesliga than they do in the EPL? Uh, well, the success part of it would, could be just down to the numbers. And the numbers part of it comes to a cultural uh, acceptance. Um, and I don't know if it's the relationship that we have had over the years. Obviously, we've had a lot of players that from a military background uh, and with our association and our cooperation um, and our history when it comes to, to Germany, that has played into it. But I just think that in general, um, the, the willingness and the acceptance of, well, first and foremost, young players in general when it comes to uh, the Bundesliga, they love young players. And not just they love young players, but they play young players. Then the fact that I think that they have a greater appreciation for the, the technical part that comes with an American player, and yes, the marketing part that comes with it, but I think an overall appreciation for you're going to get a player who isn't going to give you problems, who is going to work hard, that actually is a whole lot better than, you, than a lot of people think, and isn't going to cost you as much. And so I think that just plays into them mining the U.S. market and bringing players, uh, bringing players over. And a lot of players, you know, over the years have come over. And it's a wonderful pathway right now that I think a lot of American players are looking to 
to, you know, to use. And it's not just Christian and, and his pathway and what he's done. I think some other players, as we go on, you know, your Weston McKennies or your Tyler Adams and these types that, that get a few years of Bundesliga and then use it to go to a, a quote unquote bigger club or a bigger league out there, it will be part of that pathway. But it's been fascinating for me to cover the Bundesliga and to see how, from a cultural perspective, they're just much more open to American players for what they are. And I think they just, they value them. And when I say they, I mean, not just the fans, but the ones that are ultimately making the decision, which are the technical directors, the coaches, and the leadership at these clubs. Yeah, Lexi, that's phenomenal insight. Thank you for that. So you spoke a little bit about Weston McKinney. Uh, one of my buddies right before we came on the podcast sent me a message on Instagram. Uh, it was a post by Bleacher Report Football. And Weston McKinney actually scored the last goal before Schalke went into quarantine. Mm-hmm. And he scored the first goal afterwards. Now, Weston McKinney isn't necessarily, you know, he's not an elite attacking midfielder. Um, he's more of a utility player. He can kind of play anywhere um, and, you know, he, he can play the position. He doesn't really specialize. But saying that he scored the last goal before the quarantine and the first goal after, that says something about Schalke in general. Do you think he needs to stay there or is, is there a, a move warranted for him? Well, on the State of the Union podcast, uh, which you kindly mentioned uh, earlier, which you can find out there on all the platforms, uh, myself and my good friend, David Mossy, we were discussing this. And I, look, I think that Weston McKinney is an incredible talent, but I don't think we have seen the best of him. And so I'm concerned when I watch him play at Schalke because the team is, he's just kind of winging it out there. Um, and that's all fine and well because he actually is able to do it and they give him the opportunity to do that. But we all know that as you get to a higher level, you're going to have to have a much more mature uh, type of performance and an understanding uh, and an ability to, to play a position. I ask you guys what position he plays and I'll, I'll probably get four different answers or three different answers uh, out there. So we really don't know what it is, but we all feel that he's good. And I think that's a, that's a positive feeling but now we have to kind of figure out if I'm Greg Berhalter, I'm saying, all right, well, at the U.S. national team level, uh, I can't just let him free form it. He's not messy. OK, <laughs> so I got to figure out where he plays and then I have to have some sort of discipline instilled so that he will do that. And I just think that the continued playing at Schalke right now, I don't think that that is instilling in him right now the tools that are going to help him from the national team. And so I would love to see him. I mean, he's almost in a certain way too, too good for Schalke right now. And so I would love to see him graduate and move on. Even within Germany, there's, there's, there's teams that he could uh, go to that I think would, would give him a better base. And I look at this, obviously, from a U.S. men's national team perspective. Uh, and, you know, that he's making a lot of money and playing in the Bundesliga and starting. And for my money, one of the best players on that team, that's all great. But it doesn't necessarily mean that what he's doing is going to help the national team. So ideally, if you're Greg Berhalter, where do you play him? I mean, I think he's in that three in the midfield. I think he's a, a more defensive type of – and by the way, I don't want to put you know, constraints on him in that he can't go forward. You know, some of the, right. When you look at him and Tyler Adams, for that matter, uh, I think Tyler's better at, at going forward. But I do think that almost in a – there was a player years ago that I played with called Thomas Dooley, who actually uh, was, played, had a long uh, career in Germany. And he was wonderful at picking and choosing his moments when to go forward. And he was, you know, a much more 
stay-at-home defensive type of player, but he would pick and choose really, really well when to go forward. And I think that if you play Weston in that type of position where he has defensive responsibilities because we know he's good in the air, he can tackle, but you also give him the opportunity at times to make those late runs in where I think he can be really dangerous because if he goes early, they'll pick him up. And it won't, you know, there, there's, there's not going to be a problem. Obviously, he's going to be involved in set pieces and all that kind of stuff. But in the, in the flow of play and in the run of play, you give him that opportunity to pick and choose moments where he comes late and his ability to finish and his courageous, uh, you know, spirit that he brings when he's, in, when he's in the box. I think you can make something out of there. But I do think that Greg Berhalter looks at him as a much more deep-lying or defensive type of player in with the talent that he has. And, you know, that takes discipline. And that takes an understanding of what the position is and then the ability to go out there and implement that. Yeah, I, I think you talked about allowing him to pick and choose when he can go forward. I think we saw two totally different Weston McKinney's from today when he was playing more of an eight role, it looked like, compared to what he was playing against Dortmund, which looked to be a deep-lying midfielder, that six kind of role. You saw two very different Weston McKinney's and – you saw him gain into the getting forward today and being able to connect up there and allowing things to happen, which you didn't see against Dortmund. So you definitely saw two very different Weston McKinney's just like you saw two different Tyler Adams from last well, game playing. What, what, what in I want to see from him is I don't want him to try to do everything. And I feel like he, he feels like he has to do everything. And I get it. I completely understand it. He's, he's got a wonderful engine and he's got a wonderful mentality and he believes in himself. I love he's oozing with confidence, but I would love him to be able to play and see, see him play in a game where he says, you know what, this is my responsibility and this is my role. And if I do that, I know that I'm surrounded with enough talented people that all I have to do is my job. And I'm going to do it better than anybody you have ever seen. And I'm not going to worry about doing those other things. And I feel like he's, he's spreading himself so thin at times that it, we don't see the best of him. We see moments and we see, you know, incredible moments. That's all, that's all fine and well. But I, once again, I'm extrapolating it out and I'm trying to envision him with a, a U.S. national team that's playing against, you know, possibly – a very good team, a better team where you do have to be disciplined and what, what he looks like in that situation where you cannot afford to wing it. Now, going back to Greg Berhalter, do you think he's the future of the U.S. men's national team in coaching? Or something? we haven't seen too much of him because of this whole coronavirus and stuff. Yeah, but... it's, it's, you know, it's going to be really interesting to see how he adjusts to this because he came in with – you know, some, some big and bold ideas, and I love that about him. Uh, he has a plan, and he believes in it. He's a true believer, and if you don't believe in your plan, then how do you expect any of us to believe it? And I don't necessarily agree with everything that he's done, but I think he is a romantic. He has a way uh, that he wants to play, and he is set about trying to implement that, and he's got the players that he feels can do it. Now, that's, ar that's arguable uh, as to whether he does have all the players. And now the problem is, well, even in normal times, the biggest problem is you don't have a lot of time with these players as a national team coach. And now he has even less time. And we don't know what the qualifying is going to look like, guys, for the next World Cup. We don't know if the hex is even going to exist. We don't know what format it's going to be. And so his, you know, he's still working right now, and his ability to transfer information and still keep in touch with these players, even though he's not going to have them on the field for the foreseeable future, I think that's going to dictate. And I, you know, I, we had him on um, on indoor soccer, our weekly magazine show on Fox, 
uh, a couple weeks ago, and I asked him about, is this going to force him to be more pragmatic now? And uh, he, he actually gave a really interesting answer in that, look, he, he is what he is, uh, and he believes in what he believes in, but I think that, there's a, that, that there is an acceptance that because this is completely different uh, and, and interesting times, he is going to have to adjust. And he, his expectations may be, may be a little lower now because of the reality that he's just not going to have the time with these players to do the things that he wants. And so who knows? Maybe he's looking at another cycle. I don't know if he gets another cycle. But ultimately, he, he's just got to find a way to qualify this team and then do well in the World Cup because that ultimately is what you are judged on. Is there a certain coach you would like to see or you would think would uh, come after him who would – be up for the job because there's a lot of talk you got talk of jesse marsh yeah uh the peter vermese those two coaches are heavily named and i mean jesse marsh is probably the biggest american name right now coach wise so do you see jesse marsh filling in there or even wanting to come coach the national team because you he has so much success at the club level and his implementations are so different from club level and national team level which you kind of touched on with Berhalter. I see uh, both of those names are the ones that I would, would pick out from an American perspective. Look, there's always going to be international big names that want it because it's a, it still is a prize job. And so you're going to have people, you know, coming, you're going to have, uh, you know, huge, huge names and players that, and, guys, and guys that have been around for a long time. You might even have, you know, guys like Roberto Martinez, who's coaching uh, Belgium right now, who has now that international pedigree. Um, and, you know, I, I've known him for a long time. And I think he would be somebody that would probably be in the mix. Uh, but when it comes to, you know, Jesse Marsh right now, I still think that he has or feels he has more to do. And I, and I believe he will do more in that in the next level. Um, but also keep in mind, Coaching the national team is a very, very different type of coaching. And I think it actually lends itself to someone like Peter Vermes more than Jesse Marsh at this point. In terms of who, of those two, who would be more inclined to want to do it right now? I think that, you know, someone like, uh, someone like Peter Vermes. And, and, you know, Peter also looks at things in a, in a much more uh, 30,000 foot type of level. I mean, look, he gets into the details too, but he, he also thinks about, in the holistic way of how to go about it. And I think he, if he would want to change the entire philosophy of the, the U S men's national team and, you know, indirectly or directly the entire federation, which may be a, a bigger project. Maybe that's more of a, a technical director type of uh, a type of thing for him, which is what he does in Kansas city. By the way, he's got a great gig in Kansas city. So both of those guys, uh, they might just say, you know what? I, I just don't want to do that right now, but I think you'll have plenty of people, if uh, if Greg, you know, stops after this cycle and then you look, they look for someone or hell, you know, we never know if you change in the middle of the cycle. Yeah, so we're going to get into um, we're going to continue with the kind of the U.S. soccer thing. Uh, what are the biggest issues U.S. soccer faces developing and retaining talent, in your opinion? Because we just had the new MLS Academy mm -hmm. system be announced and the girls Academy, too. Um, but what are the biggest issues you see personally through and professionally through the for the u.s right now uh our biggest challenge uh, has been continues uh and and will continue to be um our incredible diversity of thought when it comes to how we think about the game um and this applies to development when it comes to youth and and all the way up to the national team if i asked all three of you guys 
what beautiful soccer is, I'm gonna get three different versions of it. Uh, we collectively in our country, uh, we have such a wonderful diversity, which in my estimation makes us the greatest country in the world, but it also poses incredible challenges to try to get everybody to move in the same direction. We all have different ideas of what the game should look like. I look you know, behind you guys, you know, I see an Arsenal and I see uh, you know, a Man uh, Manchester United over there. And you know, wherever, wherever you know, you're, you're coming from, those are the types of things that, that you think about. And we don't have the type of history and the collective understanding, and not just understanding, but the collective acceptance of this is how we like to play. This is what beautiful soccer is. And, you know, other countries, cause I, you know, I laugh when, you know, I laugh when people say, well, Iceland can do it. Why can't we do it? Well, it's because it's Iceland. Okay. There, there is nothing. It is the proverbial apples and oranges. Okay. And if I ask 10 people, and if I, if my job is to get 10 people to go from here to the other side of the street, it's a hell of a lot easier to get 10 people to go from here to the other side of the street than to get a thousand people to go from here to the other side of the street. And within those thousand people, everybody thinks about getting to the other side of the street in a different way. So those are the challenges right now. When we talk about, when we talk about development, we should do this, or this person, these are falling through the cracks. We all have different ideas and that's, that's okay. But I think what we might have to come to grips with is, we're going to have to decide from a national team perspective, okay, which is 11 guys on the field, 11 girls on the field from a women's national team perspective. You're never going to be able to satisfy everybody in terms of what they think beautiful soccer is or the way the U.S. national team should play. And so you're going to have to decide. And when you do that, you make it exclusive as opposed to <clears throat> that scares everybody. But mm -hmm. in doing that, you, you state, this is what we are. And some people will fit in and some people won't. And the people that won't, either you adjust or you just don't fit in. And that's okay. I know it scares us to death, but it's okay. Maybe they adjust and maybe they do fit in. But trying to be everything to everybody, I think it wastes time, it wastes energy, it wastes resources. And I think that has inhibited us as much as anything in terms of our development as a soccer nation. And so, Alex, Alexi, what I get from what you just said is the biggest thing for our country is to form some sort of identity. Is that correct? Yeah, but with so, the understanding, with the understanding that not everybody's going to agree. Right. So, for me, one of the biggest soccer identities that I found from a you know uh, from a nation um, in different tournaments and what have you is Spain with their tiki taka, sure, um, their kind of mentality playing the game. You know. Um, short, short, long, you know, keep the ball moving. That keeps the defense moving. That tiki-taka, that is kind of their – that's that's what they do in Spain. So that's their own, you know. Sure. That, that's, okay, that, that's their so, – so, so let's say that's how we want to play. Fine, that's no problem. Uh, so then we're looking at someone like um, – let me think here. Uh, how about a, a Brian McBride, a, a U.S. men's national team legend? Uh like, there we go. There oh, oh, we yeah. go. A crew legend when it comes to that. So if that's the way you want to play, that limits what Brian McBride can do. Okay. Exactly. So you have to be accepting of that. And either Brian McBride adjusts and look, I wouldn't put it past him. He's a great player, but you also might have to come to grips with the fact that a guy like Brian McBride will never play for the national team. And that's, that's, that's not a bad thing, but you're, you're, you're absolutely right. These are the types of decisions that have to be made, and they're difficult to make because when you do it, you're excluding players, and, and you're doing something where you say, you know what, because these players that don't fit, 
they might be great players. They may go on and, and be incredible. They may go and play in the club. And it's not about the best 11 players. It's about the best collection of 11 players <clears throat> on the field. And that's sometimes that's difficult to accept. Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. So, you know, it takes a really great player to be able to adapt to a, to a different situation. So kudos to those players that can take a, um, a coach's instructions and adapt their style of play to that. Uh, but yeah. Alexi, once again, we're going to go ahead and switch gears. So Hold on, Blake, can I just ask a question real quick? Go ahead. So we talked – so um, a lot with this COVID-19 stuff, a lot of college programs are cutting, being cut. Um, do you see the pathway to the pros from the youth level changing a little bit? Or do you see – it kind of staying the same because I mean, you have national team players who come from programs of the same size that are being cut, like Walker Zimmerman coming from Furman, Clint Dempsey coming from Furman as well. Do you see them not having the ability to come from lower level college programs and come through now, or do you see more homegrown contracts being signed going forward with the lease or less possibilities at the college level? Yeah, I don't think that it has to do with the, the level of the college that you're coming from. I just think it has to do with college right now in that that pathway is much less appealing for obvious reasons, um, and it's been diminished. And look, I can lament the fact that the college pathway is not as um, appreciated or respected or taken at this point. Uh, I, I do feel that it is that it is worth it. I do feel that in our zest and zeal to create better soccer players, sometimes we fail to give them the tools and the skills necessary for the 22 and a half hours that they're not actually on the field. And I do feel it is our responsibility. And sometimes you, you get those lessons and you learn those things through the college path. I do feel that college has a future, but um, it's a very different one than when I was growing up and probably when, uh, when you guys were growing up. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but I also think that it's, there's an opportunity there. We have this incredible platform that is college soccer. It's hard to move, uh, and, and certainly college soccer doesn't run the show, but if we can find a way to harness that, it can be just an added type of pathway. And I do believe that, that players still can come out of that pathway if they, if they take it. Um, going forward. As far as, you know, the programs going away, I think there's a lot of colleges that are using this as an opportunity to do what they wanted to do for a long time. And look, there's, there's business behind it. And I understand that uh, when it comes to it, it's, it pains me still when I see a college soccer program that is, that is, uh, that is terminated. And we've seen it now for, uh, you know, a, a bunch within this period um, with, you know, within the, uh, within the lockdown period that we've been in. But I think that this is something that they have wanted to do. And the fact that, you know, colleges are losing money just like anybody else, this only exasperates the situation. And so there, there's less pushback when they do it in these times of challenge and, and, in a, and in a crisis than if they did it in normal times. But I think that it would, they would have done it no matter what. And you talked about harnessing the platform. Do you, one of the big things going around the college game right now is the 21st century model about going fall and spring. Do you see that? being a huge benefit to producing more professional players other than I mean, just you a know you season? mean spreading the season out and and doing those types of things yeah, yeah. i mean look if if we could, and and by the way that's just those are just little things uh, but even those little things are important because 
you know, trying to get the NCAA to do anything, especially when it's coming from soccer, I mean, it is a, it is a cruise ship that you're trying to, trying to turn and it takes forever to do it. And people like, you know, Sasha Kurowski uh, over in, uh, at Maryland and, you know, these types of people that are, that are leading the charge, more power to them. And thank you for doing that with, uh, you know, because you need, you need leadership and you need people that want to do some different things. And if it can even be tweaked a little bit, a little bit is going to go a long way. Spreading out those types of uh, types of games so there's a longer season, so it's not just this this sprint that happens in the fall and then you're and then you're done for months and months and months. And that's just that's just not good. But you got to be able to convince the NCAA that this is something that is good for them. And I, and I do think that they can be convinced, but it's going to take it takes a lot of voices and a lot, unfortunately, a lot of time for that to ultimately happen. I hope this comes through. I hope even the little things that we can we can do will push us along. Mm-hmm. So switching gears, thank you for asking those, Deco- those questions, Dakota. So Alexi, you were the first American player to sign for a Serie A team when you signed for Salcio, Padova. Um, and then two years after the 1994 World Cup, the MLS was formed. So my question for you is, what did the 1994 World Cup do for your career and for soccer and the United States in general? Well, for me, uh, let's be honest, the reason why I'm talking to you today is because of the summer of 1994. It changed my life forever. I lived the power of what a World Cup can do to an individual. Um, I had opportunities on and off the field. Uh, I went in front of you know, a billion people and kicked the ball every once in a while in the right direction. Uh, and I looked the way that I looked and all of those different things combined changed my life forever. And um, you know, all those, all those opportunities, including the opportunity to go over to Italy, uh, were, were incredible. And it was, you know, only for a couple of years, and then we came back for MLS. But, you know, at that point, it was before the Bosman ruling, it was before the opening of the European community, all the best players, all the best money, or the biggest money, uh, and all the prestige was in Serie A over there in Italy. And every single Sunday I was lining up and I was playing for a small club. Our only goal was just to stay in Serie A because they had just come up from Serie B. And our only goal was to stay in there. And every Sunday I was playing against the best in uh, in the world, both from Italian perspective and international, because they all came there. And, you know, I got my ass kicked a lot. Uh, And I learned a lot. I became a better soccer player, but I also became a better person for that entire experience and learning a new language and adapting to not just a new culture, but adapting in that fishbowl that is soccer over there and living it day in and day out. And keep in mind that when I stepped on the field in 94 in the World Cup, I had never been on the books of a club before. You know, we did it backwards. For two years, we trained for the World Cup in 94, which is why guys like myself and Kobe Jones, we have a lot of international caps because that's all we did. And we had never been on the, on the books of any kind of club. So that was my first club experience was going and jumping on the field uh, in Syria over there. And it was a blast. I had a great time. However, however, I will say that the day that I got on the plane and flew back for the start of MLS was one of the proudest days of my life. And to this, you know, to this day, uh, I look at my involvement from the start in MLS as something that, uh, that I'll never forget and that I remain eternally proud for because it's rare that you get to be part of something from the start. And I know it's not perfect, but it is La Cosa Nostra. It is our thing. Uh, I love it, warts and all, and that I was there from the start and that it's not only going to last and lasted well beyond my career, but well beyond my lifetime. It, it warms my heart. I'm glad I introduced you as an MLS pioneer then. <laughs> 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 
Um, yeah, maybe. Um, <laughs> you're about to turn 50. Yes. If I haven't just made that you, clear, yes. Just, just, yeah. just, giving you a, just, just giving you a hard time. So you touched on the talent that you played against in the Serie A. I was just looking through the roster that you played against in Brazil and the, um, the round of 16 and the 1994 World Cup. And you played against guys like Ronaldo and Cafu. How was that? Yeah, so Bebeto and uh, and Romario and these types of players. So we, we ended up losing to the eventual winner in Brazil. No shame in that. It was on July 4th. It was up in in Stanford. And, you know, the end of that dream and that that adventure um, was was bittersweet. Uh, you don't want it to end. You never want it to end. And you wanted that moment uh, where we be- we still believed we could beat, beat Brazil. Didn't end up happening. But it was also sweet because we had done something that we are that we that we knew had impacted our country and our sport. It, the sport was never going to be the same, and we were really, let's be honest, we were worried. We did not want to let ourselves and let our country down as the host nation. Um, so we needed to get out of the group, and we got out of the group because we did the things that we needed to do, and that was that was successful, and we brought pride to ourselves and to our country and um, and to our sport, and we really, you know. 1994 was a seminal moment, and there is before 1994 and after 1994, uh, which is why I'm so excited about you know 2026 because I think we're it, we're gonna it's gonna be incredible, guys. It's gonna be the like a tournament the likes of which we have never seen. We're gonna they're gonna make plenty of money, uh, more money than they've ever made before. But I I just also think that coming back in 2026 in what the soccer uh, landscape is now, uh, it's night and day from 1994. And I can't wait to see, look, there's somebody that we're probably not even talking about right now because we're six years away, right? Six years before the 1994 World Cup, nobody knew about me, okay? And so there's, there's a player right now that in six years may star in that 2026 World Cup and his life, like mine, will be changed and forever changed by the summer of 2026. And I'm so excited to see who that is. Might be a player we're talking about, might be a player we don't even know about. So do you attribute some of the popularity and success of the 1994 World Cup in the United States to the formation of the, the Major League Soccer League? Yeah, I mean, part of the, you know, part of the awarding of the World Cup in 94 was uh, with, you know, with the premise that this was going to lead to uh, a league of our own. Uh, in, and it was actually st- was supposed to start earlier, but we waited a couple years. And a lot of us came back because there is, you know, there's a trait and a characteristic and of responsibility. And this was, as I said, this was our thing. This was La Cosa Nostra. It was warts and all, something that we wanted to be a part of. And we had talked about, we talked in the back of buses and, on, and in hotels and on planes about this league for us. And we also knew that if it was going to go, we needed to be there and we needed to be a part of it. And so we all came back from different places after we were playing for uh, a couple of years. But you know, there was also no, no assurance that this was going to last. You guys have been around long enough to know that our, our, our history is littered with leagues, defunct leagues and clubs that have folded uh, both men's and women's uh, over the years. And so we were cautiously optimistic, but, uh, you know, that we're 25 years on now. Um, I'm not sure a lot of us had visions of what it looks like right now. Um, we, were, we were confident, but I don't think we, we, we saw what, 2020 MLS looks like. So you kind of touched base on the 2026 World Cup. Apart from the obvious cities that are probably going to host, what cities would you like to see host? Apart from like the LA's, the New York's, Miami. Right. right. 
So I think that there's going to be a real, um, you know, because of what the, the Pacific Northwest has become, uh, a real push to do that. And rightfully so. I mean, when you're talking about, you know, your Vancouver, I think Vancouver will be there anyway, from a Canadian perspective, uh, your Portland's and your Seattle's, um, they're going to fight it out. And who knows, maybe they'll have both of them. I don't, I, I don't know. So that'll be, that'll be one thing. Uh, you know, the, the rise of Atlanta will be another thing. Keep in mind, back in 94, for example, Detroit was a, um, mm-hmm. was a venue. And there's, and there's a lot of places that, whether they have MLS or not, doesn't necessarily mean that they won't, won't be there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there's a lot of places right now that, uh, that maybe we, in the past we wouldn't have looked at. But I don't think that there's any place right now that you look and say, that can't possibly have a soccer, uh, be a soccer venue for 2026. So I think everything's on the table when it comes uh, to the things. But, you know, for example, what, what Atlanta does and the sheer numbers that they're doing right now, you know, because you think about the final, all right? So maybe you have an homage to 94 and the, and the final 94 was in LA. We know there's the, the new stadium that's coming online here that certainly is going to be a online as possibly either hosting well it's going to host games but does it host the final does it host the opening game but you know Miami and Dallas and these types of places they're going to be in the running you know the the Florida thing we had Orlando uh back in 19 uh, back in 1994 you know with what's happening with with David Beckham and Inter Miami does that does that come into play you know all sorts of uh, all sorts of interesting things, and and as we know, it's going to be a much bigger tournament too. So you're going to need you're going to, you're going to need more venues, and um, and that opens it up. But I wouldn't I wouldn't look at anybody as off the table. Yeah, I think I don't think there's going to be much problem filling stadiums. I think I know I've already talked about it. I mean, I if I can get to games, I'm going to go to games no matter where they are. So I I think people are going to be willing to travel to from LA to Cali for a game. And I just don't see that being an issue going forward with that world cup road trip, so, baby road trip. Yeah. Yep. In, in 1994, there were 3,587,538 people in total attendance at the world cup across America. And that broke the previous record by 1 million. I'm not sure what the record's at now, but if that's what it was in 1994 in, in the United States, um, in 2026, it's only going to go up. Yeah, they're going to blow then, it out. They're going to. I mean, out. you got to put in perspective. Like soccer's been growing like so much in America now, so there's going to be a lot more people who fill those stadiums too. So, hey, listen, I said that nobody's off the table. I don't know about Hawaii, my man. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not, I, mean, yeah. I won't be here when, when that time comes. Anyway, I, I'm just, so I'm just good. saying, I'm just saying. You know. <laughs> We'll I wish we'll soccer was here, but hey, but I wouldn't put it past FIFA. I mean, they 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 love a good time and a good party. So who knows? Maybe you, you never know. You can never can't you never can tell. That's so, what's around here not having any like professional teams, any soccer teams around here because you can't really go to any stadiums. So I know we actually back when I was with the Galaxy, uh, we took uh, uh, we, we you know we we traveled with, with David Beckham. We did all sorts of international tours, and we played a game actually in uh, in Hawaii. And MLS teams have gone there many many times and played games. We've always had a really good time there. So talking about the 1994 World Cup, it looks like looking through the stadiums that you guys played at, they were all football-specific stadiums, um, whether it's the Rose Bowl yeah. or RFK, they were all football. So because football stadiums are generally – they have a larger capacity for fans, uh, a big push in the MLS has been soccer-specific stadiums. Where do you play at? Do you play in those soccer-specific stadiums in 2026? Or do you still look yeah. for the larger venues? I think a lot of those soccer-specific stadiums are going to get sized out in that, that they, they just can't accommodate it. Um, 
there are going to be a couple probably that will be okay because, as we said, there's more teams. And look, while just going to a World Cup game is something, but there are limitations when it comes to the teams that are that are playing. And so maybe maybe some smaller types of teams that wouldn't sell out the sixty thousand type of game. But uh, look, um, and, and and so maybe they make you know because I think of. Uh, you know, oh, Minnesota, uh, you know, in, in what they have going on up there. You know, they have a beautiful stadium, but it only holds 21,000 or something like that. So it's going to be difficult for them. But, you know, for training facilities and all, and all that kind of stuff, these could, be, these could be good things. But I do think some of those soccer-specific stadiums, relative to who the opponents are, could actually work. So it's going to be strategic as to, as to what they do. And just because you have a soccer-specific stadium doesn't mean you don't have another stadium. Uh, yeah, so, I, I agree. So we're going to get to our next question. So I know you had like Marcel Balboa, John Harks, Michael Lapper, Kobe Jones, Brad Friedel on your team back in 94. Now, how do you think they would compare to the current U.S. men's house team? Do you think they would be able to beat them? Yeah, we'd kick their ass. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> now we're looking, unbiased, Alexi, unbiased. <laughs> Look, they, they have so many more uh, advantages than we ever had. And – um, and, I, and I don't, I don't begrudge them that, and I don't resent that at all. I actually, I love the fact that they have so many more things when it comes to the resources they have, the coaching they have, the fields they have, the technology they have, the, the, the you know the league they have, the the soccer that they're able to watch and grow up watching. You know, we never, we never had that, and you know that's a good thing. Um, that 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 is what we, you know, we have evolved to, and that's what that's what's going on. Now, having said that, I, you know, I like to think that it depends what time you're an era you are playing in. So if, if we had had all those advantages, if you're good, you're good and you'll be good in any era. So when people say, well, could, could Messi play in, you know, 50 years ago, or could Pele play 50 years later, if you're good, you're good. And it's all relative to the, the, the things that you have. And so, you know, the teams, it's a good team then with all of the advantages that people have now, if we were playing there. I think we would be just as good and we would be able to, uh, you know, able to play them. Um, you know, everybody thinks that they're better. Everybody thinks they have more personality. Everybody thinks they have more character and all that. You know, the problem for the U.S. men's national team right now is the epic failure of not qualifying for 2018. And that's just, that stench is not going away until they rectify the situation. And so, you know, that's the trump card, right? Uh, well, listen, we qualified. We went to the World Cup. And so that's the types of things that, um, you know, the onus is on Greg Berhalter and, and also the opportunity for these guys. And if I'm, if I'm a Weston McKinney, if I'm a Tyler Adams, if I'm a Christian Pulisic or a Gio Reyna or any of these young guys, I'm licking my chops. I'm saying, you know what? You guys really screwed up that last cycle. But on my watch, that's not going to happen. And the minute you qualify, even though it shouldn't be a cause for celebration, but as soon as you do it, you've already achieved more than the previous team in, the, in, in, in that cycle. And so already you're going to be, be able to puff out your chest. And so that's an opportunity um, to be the team that brought us back to where we belong and be part of that team. And so if that's how I would be looking at it. And I know how that's, that's how guys, you know, you, you just, you just uh, rattled off there. That's how all of those guys would be looking at it as an opportunity. And I'm not going to let anybody take that away from me. Not only did you guys qualify, you guys also had better hair and better facial hair. A lot of hair. A lot of hair back then. <laughs> lots of lots of hair, yeah. <laughs> All so right. So, to that, 
so what what players have been like in your eyes have been overlooked for the U.S. national team haven't been really given that opportunity to shine I mean if you look back uh, overlooked I don't think anybody's overlooked I don't think anybody's fallen through the cracks I think some people just for whatever reason it could be timing it could be the coach that's there it could be injuries it could be the way that they play they just don't fit in so you know someone like someone like Jason Christ, who was just an incredible goal scorer. And it just never, it just never materialized from an, uh, a national team perspective. It doesn't mean that he's not a great player. He was a great player. It's just for whatever reason, it didn't, it, it didn't happen. I, I, don't, I don't think we overlook anybody. I, I don't buy into the whole theory that we have all sorts of talent that is falling through the cracks. If, if you're good, you will get seen. We have enough of a network right now. But just because I think you're good or you think somebody else is good doesn't mean that the only people that matter, which are the people that are deciding, think they're good. But it also doesn't mean that they're falling through the cracks or getting overlooked, all right? It's, a, it, it's subjective. You know, Greg Berhalter may think that I'm great and he may think that you suck, all right? Or he may think that you're great and I suck. Doesn't necessarily well, I mean, make it so. It doesn't necessarily. He doesn't play better than me, so that's pretty bad. <laughs> it was, it was it pretty bad. It's just subjective. <laughs> it's just it's just an opinion, and ultimately yeah. he's going to be judged on these decisions that he made. And if they go well, then I guess you weren't overlooked. But if they don't go well, then it kind of sets you up to say, "Yeah, but you overlooked him." You know, you you could have had Poopus there on the national team, and you you know, you, for whatever <laughs> you reason, you don't want me there. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think you. I think you touched touched it on the head when you brought up it being subjective. I mean, you're also picking players who fit the way you want to play. So if you don't fit the way you want to play, then they're not going to pick you. That's, that doesn't mean you're not a great player in another yeah, but, system. Yeah, but there are people that will argue that we, because of the fact that we are not Brazil and we're not Spain or, or pick your elite type of club out there, that we can't afford to have what we all recognize as a good player, not, not, we can't afford to not do the things to enable that player to be successful. And that's, you know, that it's a philosophical, you know, uh, discussion and debate out there. And so do you adjust, do you adjust to fit that player in? Um, and I'm not saying you can't adjust at all, but you know, once again, it gets back to that thing of, you're a good player, but you might not be the best for the national team. And it doesn't mean that you can't be great. Hell, it doesn't mean you can't even be the greatest. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you're going to take some criticism if, 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 a, if there's a player that's, a, that's American and eligible for the U.S. men's national team that is kicking ass and doing great stuff at a high level and the world recognizes him as a great player. But for whatever reason, it doesn't work for the national team the national team is going to come in for a lot of criticism. Why aren't you changing it? And it's hard to make that argument, but it's the argument that ultimately you have to make is it just doesn't fit. It just doesn't work. Okay. And when we see Messi, who's one of the greatest players to ever play the game and arguably the greatest player ever to play the game, but he looks very different than when he plays for Barcelona than when he plays for Argentina. And, you know, so relative to the people around him. And, I, and I'm not saying that they're better off without Messi. I'm just saying that, a national team is very, very different. The dynamic is very, very different. And ultimately, the, uh, the results that you get aren't, it's not, it's not directly related to the individual talent that you have. It's the collective understanding of this is how this, this is the best group of players that plays together, as opposed, as I said, to the best, the best players. Yeah. Yep. Very good insight. So we're going to take a quick break for our sponsors commercial. All right. 
All right, everybody, welcome back to MLS Gun Wild Week 13. We have a special guest, Alexi Lalas, on here with us tonight. So we just kind of spoke about the U.S. men's national team and kind of went over a variety of topics with them. Uh, we're going to switch gears here to when Alexi was a GM within the MLS. So he was a GM with, if I'm correct, San Jose, uh, the New York Metro Stars, and the LA Galaxy. Um, you were a part of San Jose's move to Houston. You were a part of the Metro Stars rebrand into the New York Red Bulls. And you were a part of bringing in David Beckham and kind of the rebrand of the LA Galaxy. So what would you do differently as a GM in the MLS now as opposed to your stints at those three clubs? Well, I'm, as, I, as we've established over the course of this uh, recording, I'm turning 50. So I like to think <laughs> that I've that I've matured a little bit and have a, you know, a better understanding, maybe some more perspective. I was 32, 33 years old when I started, you know, uh, like you said, going to these different clubs you know, I went right in as the president. I didn't have any business experience, but I learned a tremendous amount on the job and very quickly made plenty of mistakes along the way, but I don't regret it. I, I had a great time. I was exposed to part of the game that, as player, you are, you are not exposed to, and you're insulated and isolated from that front office and the business of it. And I was exposed to men and women that work just as hard as anybody else out there and deserve, deserve oftentimes even more credit than the people that are kicking the ball. Uh, and I'm really proud of a lot of the stuff that we, uh, that we did. Um, but if I had to do things differently, I, I tried to be something that I wasn't. I had a, an idea of this is what a front office uh, or just a, you know, an office person should be. And it's very different than you know, my existence as a, a professional athlete in a, in a locker room and on a field. And so I tried to act and dress and talk in a way that um, at times wasn't comfortable for me. And I think it's understandable. You, you, you know, you, you try to adjust. And I'm not saying you don't adjust. And I'm not saying that you don't grow. But um, I would just, I would just, I'd be much more comfortable with myself and who I am uh, and I, that's, you know, so that's how I would approach it. And I know that's, that's, that's a kind of a big picture type of thing. But when I think back, um, I, was, I was trying to be something that not only was I not at the time, but I don't think I ever possibly could be. So it doesn't mean that I, that I couldn't do the job, but I, I probably needed to do it much more as myself as opposed to trying to be somebody else. So just to understand this a little bit better, Alexa, you know, we're all Columbus Crew fans. So a couple yes. of years ago, we went through the whole Save the Crew movement. Um, no, I Anthony heard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure. <laughs> uh, Anthony Precourt basically put an ultimatum on the city of Columbus. Either you build me a soccer-specific stadium mm -hmm. um, or I'm moving to Austin. Um, you being a person that was involved in the front office, a GM that successfully moved San Jose to Houston, what was the motive behind doing that? Well, it was a little bit different back then because, uh, you know, the Anschutz Entertainment Group owned a number of different teams. And actually, with the San Jose Earthquakes, I, you know, I was given that opportunity, um, and that was owned by the Anschutz Entertainment Group, as was the Metro Stars and the, the LA Galaxy. So that's changed a lot in there's individual ownership. Um, in there's individual, uh, there's no multiple ownership anymore when it uh, when it comes to uh, to what's going on. When it comes uh, when it comes to the business of it, I know I was exposed to not just the business but the reality of the business, and it is not for the faint of heart. It is as as successful as you can look at MLS in totality. It is still a grind. 
And it is still, you know, a difficult business, even in the best of times. And certainly right now in these challenging times, it is also a difficult uh, business. And finding the right market and more importantly, being able to access that market and benefit from being in that market is, is ideal uh, and is important and is vital. So there was, a, there was a recognition that in order for us to go forward, San Jose wasn't doing it. And a lot of it had to do with stadium situation. Um, and we've even seen in, in Columbus how that is a key. And if you are able to get that, it changes the equation for everybody involved. And so there wasn't that stadium solution there. Uh, so you moved to Houston, but with the recognition that that market is still had potential. And when it came back with the new stadium, with local ownership, uh, with different ownership, obviously, you know, that's, that's when it really came to be. And I, we were probably spread too thin when I talk about we, I mean, the Anschutz Entertainment Group right now owning all those teams. But guess what? If Phil Anschutz hadn't stepped up and owned multiple teams, the league would have gone out of business. So, you know, that was the decision there. Then you go to the, you know, then they sent me to the Metro Stars. I, I had three very different and unique and distinct and challenging type of situations like you mentioned. So I go to San Jose and we're in the process of moving the team. And that's, that's a really difficult type of dynamic to navigate through from a front office perspective. So I, you know, that was the first challenge. Then I get to the, the Metro Stars out there and the Red Bulls come in. And once again, we're looking to divest our team. So that's a, that's a good thing, but I'm also dealing with a front office and a team where all of these rumors and, you know, the fact is that this team is getting sold and everybody's trying to figure out what that is. And that was, you know, a whole nother challenge. And then coming back to the Los Angeles Galaxy, like you mentioned, into the hurricane that was the David Beckham situation. So all three very, very distinct and different, uh, but I learned a lot in each and every one. Yeah, so we're actually, so next question. We learned that you played hockey in college. Yeah. And I don't know if many people know that, um, but what kind of aspects and skills did you have in hockey that you kind of took over into soccer? Yep. So I grew up in the suburbs of Detroit uh, and being from Michigan where it's the law, you got to play hockey. I actually played more hockey than soccer growing up. <laughs> and I still play hockey. I love hockey. I'm a diehard Red Wings fan. Um, my Saturday nights growing up were spent preparing my my seat in front of the television on Saturday nights to watch hockey night in Canada. And I would put a towel on and I would have my root beer and my potato chips and all that. So that's, that's how I spent my Saturday nights as a kid watching a lot of the Toronto Maple Leafs to be quite honest, because it was the CBC broadcast over there in hockey night in Canada. Anyway. Uh, but I also, the day that soccer ended in the fall, I, that was, that was it. I would go to the rink and I would start hockey practice. And that's the, the existence of sports back then. Um, you know, the hockey movement and the thinking, uh, a lot of times you'll see, especially when it comes to the international players, you'll see them playing 5v2 before games uh, in the arenas. And a lot of them will have played soccer um, and, and vice versa. Uh, so for me, a lot of the thinking and a lot of the movement and a lot of the patterns and a lot of the mathematics involved in hockey are, are the same in soccer. You know, you, you have overlapping, you have patience, you have, um, you know, switching fields, you have you know, pressuring, you know, high press, th those types of things, all of that different types, uh, type of thinking. Now, there's a lot of stuff that's different, but I, I think, you know, the weaving factor and the, you know, the, the patience and the hold up play and all, all of that kind of stuff, I think lends itself to the same thinking 
that athletes in both sports uh, have. And I was really, really fortunate. I, I know that I became a better soccer player for having hockey in my life. Um, because it got me to think about things differently. It challenged me uh, in terms of my muscle development and muscle confusion, because uh, it, it, it accessed different muscles that then I would use in soccer. So all of those things I think were, were important. I, 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 I remain um, a, a big proponent of playing multiple sports. And when it comes to hockey, I, I do think that it can be beneficial. Yeah, so, I mean, listeners, you've heard it here. Hockey and soccer are two in one. Um, yeah. And it's funny, you kind of touched on a lot of those things because I grew up playing hockey and soccer at the same way. And it was right after that last fall practice for soccer, I was in the rink literally the next day, if not later that night up until spring. And then I got back on the soccer field and you kind of touched on all the aspects that kind of carry over into the two. And then also the head on the swivel thing. If you play with the smaller ice rink, your head's always on a swivel. You know where players are coming from. And if you're playing in that central midfield role, no matter where, you always have your head on a swivel. I mean, they go hand in hand with each other going forward. There's also, you know, the, the aspect of, you know, when you grow up in Michigan, you know, I had that whole wonderful experience of, you know, playing on frozen ponds and lakes and pickup games and, you know, backyards that were flooded and driveways that were flooded and that whole type of existence, which which we don't have enough of uh, and, it's, and it's kind of gone away a little bit in terms of that, that, that culture, especially when it comes to soccer, we don't have enough pickup soccer, but I don't know how to change that because you know, our, our culture and our country are different and the world is different, let's be, let's be honest. But that was really, really cool to have because you, you start playing against older players, you start playing against faster and bigger players. And I, I then sought it sought that type of experience out from a soccer perspective. And I would find adult games. I would play in adult leagues. I would find pickup games with soccer players because that challenged me. And, and, I, and I definitely think that I picked that up from the hockey that I played. And I spent a lot of my uh, youth um, going back and forth between Detroit and Athens, Greece. And so I had that pickup soccer type of thing and that, you know, that gravel field, uh, empty, deserted uh, type of lot soccer uh, as a as a young redheaded American kid in the Greek culture over there, so I had the best of both worlds. Uh, but the hockey influence and impact on my life cannot be overstated. Yeah, whether it's hockey or it's basketball or any other sport out there, I believe that playing multiple sports is a benefit to any young athlete and the development of not only their body but of their brain and you know making them a better person and a better player in whatever sport they they decide to play in in the future. All right, so Poopus, it's our last. Oh, schedule. Gotcha. It's our last. It's our last written question. Okay. Yeah. All right. So, how do you deal with haters, and do they, pretty much after the way that you say things or do things, like do they affect that? Well, I've always considered myself a performer and an entertainer, um, from a, even from a young age. Uh, you, you rehearse, uh, you train, you go on to a field uh, or a stage, um, you wear a costume or a uniform, uh, and then you perform in front of an audience. And sometimes it goes well, sometimes it doesn't. Uh, I continue to be an entertainer and performer in uh, the capacity of television. And I love uh, what I do, um, and I'm so fortunate as we, as we talked about. And it gives me the opportunity to continue to be an entertainer. And when you're an entertainer and when you're a performer, you recognize that 
I, I don't I don't care whether you like or like me or not. I'd rather have you like me. I'm I'm not a, a robot or anything like that. I have a heart. I do have a soul. Um, uh, let me inform you of that. But I recognize <laughs> that there's not a chance in hell that I'm going to please everybody. And there's not there's no if I'm doing my job right. To be quite honest, um, not everybody's going to agree with me. And some people are vehemently going to disagree with the things that I say. First off, I remind myself that talking about soccer, okay. And while it is near and dear to us, it is very low on the totem pole of importance when it comes to life, okay? And so when somebody gets angry at me because of a soccer take that I have, first off, I, I expect it. Secondly, uh, there is a part of me that enjoys it. I'll be honest with you. I mean, there is a, a punk ethos of, I don't care, throw stuff at me. Even when I walked on the field and 100,000 people were booing me and there was plenty of places where I went where that happened, I loved that. What I don't want you to do is ignore me. And that's what performers are there. They're there to elicit a response. And so, you know, when, and, and the other thing is that nowadays, everybody's got a, a bullhorn. Everybody's got a platform from which they can tell you, you suck. And so some of it just becomes, you know, white noise to a certain extent, especially the amount that I, the amount that I get. Uh, and, and the other thing I, I always remind myself is when, you know, sometimes, you know, people are saying it to elicit a reaction and that's, that's, that's okay. And sometimes I'll give them the, you know, the, uh, the reaction that they are looking for. But when I do sit down and when I do talk to people and when, whether it's you know, on Zoom or, or just talking to people, um, there's a very different type of dynamic that occurs. And it doesn't mean that people don't agree, disagree with me. And it doesn't mean that people can't take me to task for different things, but it's much easier at times for people to type something down and send it on social media or, or, or something out there uh, than actually formulate those words and to be able to articulate it and say it to somebody's uh, say it to somebody's face. I'm not saying it hasn't happened at times, but for the most part, uh, I, I recognize that these people that say negative things to me or critical things about me, that's not necessarily who they are. So I, I, I am a romantic, believe it or not. And I do believe in the goodness of people and in uh, the kindness and the soul of people out there, especially in the soccer community. And so I know at times I, I, uh, I elicit these types of uh, responses and, I, and, and it's okay, I'm, I'm okay with that. I'm, you gotta be pretty thick skinned and I have been for most of my, most of my life and um, that's not going to change. Yeah, everybody's entitled to their own opinion, but you know, you're very strong-willed, you're very confident in your opinions, uh, and you speak your mind, so you don't really care what everybody else has to say, and I think that's how everybody should kind of um, should go about the way that they, they formulate their opinions and you know, speak their mind. But it's, it's easy to say that it's a little more difficult yeah. as human beings to actually react, because you know, I don't want people to say bad things about me, I, and, 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 I, and like I said, it's not as if I am impervious to that or, or that, that I don't feel the darts or the arrows that are, that are, that are slinged my way. It's, that's, it's, it's part of it. I am, I am human. And, um, but I, I like to think that, as I said, I'm turning 50. I like to think that over the years, <laughs> there has been some per perspective that I have gained and the ability even more so to accept and or deflect that and just kind of move on. I believe, you know, I believe that 
I believe in the things that I'm saying. People ask me all the time, do you believe everything you're saying? No, I wouldn't say it if I didn't, uh, didn't believe it. And mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I love what I do. And I'm, as I said, I'm very, very fortunate. And there's a lot of people in my business that are just passing through and kind of using broadcast, media, television, whatever it ends up being as kind of a way station until something better comes along. And I don't want to do that. I, I, I love this. Um, and I'm a junkie for it. I still got a lot to learn. And I want to be surrounded by people that are as passionate about it and, and love it. And you can get away with it for a little bit, but it will manifest itself in your performance and you're cheating yourself and the viewer. And I don't want to ever, ever want to cheat anybody. And so what I'm giving them is my opinion, whether they, whether they like it or not, or at times whether they even want it or not. So Alexi, since you just kind of talked about a future in this thing and, you know, really loving what you do, we all love creating this podcast. Um, you know, we all work full-time jobs, but it's something that we really look forward to every single week. Like I'm, I'm fully enthralled in doing this more so than even doing my job at some points. Um, so just being on this podcast with us and, you know, you've given us feedback on prior episodes. What kind of advice do you have for us going forward? Well, look, you're already, uh, you know, establishing a, a rapport with each other and it's going to change as you, as you grow. Um, you know, the, uh, the, you know, the guest part of it, you know, I don't know how much or little you want that to be a part of, of your show, but you know, even just, you know, I can see that you guys have already been prepared. So look, as they often say, showing up on time is, is, is huge. All right. But being prepared, uh, is also huge and doing the work and recognizing that that will pay that will pay off in terms of the questions that you're asking in terms of the reaction that you have and the context that you have with the people that you are uh, that you are talking with one of, one of the things you know and, and the other thing that I will leave you with this is is this I have learned over the years how to edit myself um, and a lot of that is by out of necessity because I have very now I'm able to talk here, but the reality is when I'm on television, especially I have very s- small spaces within which to get my point across. And so you have to be able to be an editor of yourself, even in real time. You have to be able to do that, and that mm-hmm. that's a skill that takes that takes a while to figure out because you have to be able to say something that. Uh, is both interesting and entertaining. And by the way, how you say things are as important as what you say. And so, you know, watching yourselves back and saying, you know what, I could have been a little bit more dynamic in the way that I said that. Um, I could have been a little more prepared. Or I maybe even, you know, I know some of the stuff that you that you have in front of you is prepared. Well, when I'm preparing that, maybe I'm I'm that that word that I use or that phrase that I used that didn't play and you'll you'll learn as you go you'll learn as you go along but and ultimately all that is to say is is less is less is more oftentimes and don't bore us get to the chorus rob stone loves to say <laughs> play the hits okay you'll know when you have a good take you'll know when you've had a good show you'll know when you have a good segment uh, or something that really kind of resonates and mine that and don't be afraid uh, to use it as a template going forward for the things that you do, as well as looking at things that didn't go well. And maybe either you tweak those things or maybe even completely get rid of those things. And you, you remind yourself, I'm, I'm sitting here in my office here and I still have notes up in front of words that I use or phrases that I use that I'm trying to get out of, uh, of using. And whether it's the like, um, you know, or other kind of, uh, crutches that we have and we all have them you'll you'll find them out if you watch yourself enough you'll find out where you're saying this and that and this and that and saying that saying 
phrases that uh, you use as a crutch or a bridge to get you to something, something else. Sometimes it works, but sometimes you want to say, I want to cut that stuff out. And that's just all about, all about repetition. And the more shows you do, the better off you'll get. The template will start to come into form as to how you want to go about doing what you're doing. But, you know, this is also, this is also trial, trial and error. And that you love it, that's, you know, that's half the battle because there's a lot of people out there that do stuff that they don't necessarily love. And I know this is kind of a labor of, uh, of love for what you're doing, but if there ever comes a point where it's a chore or it's a task or you don't love it, then you really got to question why you're doing it. Yeah, well, thank you for that feedback, Alexi. Um, I think that's all the questions that I have. To okay. Kind of poop us. Do you guys have anything else? No, I think I'm good on this thing. Yeah, I'm good. I just want to – I'll start the thank yous. I just want to say thank you, Alexi, for joining us. I mean, such a big name. We have three real amateurs. Um, there's really nothing for you to gain from this, in my thought process at least. Um, but taking the time out, this is probably – looking at the time is probably one of our longest episodes. Um, so <laughs> coming and taking the time to join us three – kids from Columbus, Ohio, who just decided to do a soccer podcast at the beginning of the MLS season. It's huge. I mean, it's a huge confidence boost for us too, where like we've had interviews with players, but being able to get somebody of your stature is massive and it's a big confidence boost for us. Well, it's very kind of you. It's very kind. Of you. It's a pleasure. Like I, like I said, you guys, you're, you're, you're talking about soccer. You asked me on to talk about the most important subject out there and one that's near and dear to my heart, which is me. Okay, uh, we're all a bunch of <laughs> egotistical, narcissistic maniacs when it comes <laughs> when it comes to this industry. Uh, but you know, but the fact is that I you know I love talking about soccer and I love I love talking to, to people, even you know ones that are that are just starting out, because ultimately we're we're all part of that soccer family. We want soccer to grow, and as I said before, we don't have enough of this. We don't have enough talk about the game and platforms from which we can talk, and so. The more that are out there, the better off. And we'll improve and we'll move on. And, you know, you got me as a fan. You got me as, uh, as a friend. So anything that you guys need going forward, you let me know. I appreciate it, Alexi. Like, just sitting here with you today, like, I've just learned, like, so much more about, like, just podcasts in general and just more information about soccer in America and just overseas and stuff like that. So I really do appreciate it because it's just making my skills a lot better for my, for my podcast, for our podcast, too, like, my skill-wise. skill, skill wise. So I appreciate right. that big time. Awesome. Yeah. So I'll go ahead and close this out. Like everybody said, thank you, Alexi Lawless. We really appreciate having you on. Like Dakota said, this is probably our longest podcast, but when you have a guest on of this, uh, the, the reputation that you have, you can't limit the time that you have on it with the insight that you've provided us. Uh, we can't thank you enough. Um, so Alexi, I'm going to go ahead and sign us off, but you know, thank you so much for joining us again. Um, and we look forward to continuing this relationship and this conversation we have within, you know, between one another. And, you know, maybe somewhere down the line, we'll have you on again. Sounds good, guys. All right. Stay safe and stay sane. And uh, to everybody out there listening, I hope you're doing okay. And this too shall pass. Yeah. Thanks again to Alexi Lawless. This was MLS Gone Wild Week 13. Um, give it a listen. You guys take care. Stay home. Stay safe. Wear your masks. We'll catch you all next week. Peace. <laughs>